Hello, everyone. My name is Luke Thomas. This is Wednesday, March 11th, 2015. And this is also the promotional mal, mal, promotional, promotional malpractice live chat. Um, today on the podcast or the show, whatever the hell this is, we'll talk obviously about the big news in mixed martial arts on Friday. Excuse me. Saturday is UFC 185. I'm off to a roaring start here. Um, but of course, there's the, I believe the workouts are today. Maybe. There's a presser tomorrow. I have to see how I have to see how it breaks down, but obviously weigh-ins Friday and then event on Saturday. Um, today at about 4.30 p.m. East Coast time, the Mayweather-Pacquiao press conference takes place in L.A. So obviously we'll have coverage of that on MMA fighting. Friday is also the debut of uh, Premier Boxing Champions on Spike TV. Um, so a lot going on. Uh, oh, and by the way, Saturday is, of course, well, it starts before that, but Saturday is the Black Belt uh, Finals for the Jiu-Jitsu Pan Ams. Um, that'll be, uh, obviously I'll be, I'll be live tweeting that on Sunday. So just get ready for that. So a big weekend in combat sports, actually, even though I feel like it's a little quiet right now, but a lot to get to. Then of course, your questions, comments, bitches, gripes, and smart ass remarks, as we always do. Best place to ask a question is on MMAfighting.com where this window is embedded. Uh, comments that are green that obviously, as you know, get a priority whenever you're watching this, be it now or at any point in the future, uh, just as whenever you hear this message. Be sure to get up there and tell folks you're watching this on social media, be it Twitter, Facebook, or whatever the case may be. And of course, as always, if I didn't say it up front, thank you very much for joining me. I always appreciate your patronage. With that being said, uh, I just had some food, so it's all in my mouth. Uh, let's just go to the questions and uh, kick this joker off, shall we? Uh, all right. So I got a thousand things here appear on my screen. All right. Feels like, um, you know, it's funny, before UFC 184, I felt like on this point during the week prior to that fight, there wasn't a whole lot of buzz, but maybe a little bit more than there is for this one. Um, this one, I don't feel like, I feel like Anthony Pettis has a ton of potential, but just hasn't quite rounded that corner yet. I also don't feel like he's had, outside of Ben Henderson, a quote-unquote rival to help push him into a space where there is anticipation. I, I think that Rafael Dos Anjos is deeply respected and taken quite seriously, but not so seriously that there's this idea that he's a real existential threat to Pettis. And so as a consequence, um, I think there's a general excitement about the fight because you know it'll be good. It's two very credible talents. But the, so, the, the seeming, and it could be totally unfair, but the seeming inevitability of it all, I think, and the fact that Pettis hasn't quite converted himself into something yet as a commercial attraction. Buzz is a little low. I don't, I don't think the event will do poorly. I just, you know, it's just not quite there yet for him. But maybe in the future it will be. In fact, if he keeps going like he is, it almost certainly will be. All right, BJJ Luke, um, some questions for you. Feel free to skip any for the sake of time. What's your rank? You train gi, no gi, both. Game and style, weakest area of your game. Do you compete for everything about BJJ? I'm only going to talk about my BJJ insofar as uh, is relevant to anyone which means if I can uh, take a little piece of what I learned and apply it to something that actually matters, I will. I'm hesitant to discuss my own personal history because it just doesn't matter. Um, but yes, I've done gi and no gi. I uh, prefer gi, but I've done both. Um, you know, if you want to know my rank, just come roll with me. You'll figure it out pretty fast uh, one way or the other. Uh, the game style that I like is um, I like pressure passing. I like getting my head in your, under your chin and making you suffer. I don't compete uh, not because I don't like to, but because there's never an opportunity because of work. Although I don't really like to compete that much. Um, 
and the favorite thing about BJJ. Uh, it's funny, you know, I go to the gym and, and uh, this didn't happen when I first started, but eventually people sort of figured out what I do for a living. And so <clears throat> everyone in my gym is awesome, but uh, they always want to talk about MMA, which is fine. I don't mind talking about it, but the reality is even though I go and train and then take what I learn and bring it to uh, MMA or combat sports or even sports jiu-jitsu in terms of just evaluating what's going on, um, when I'm there, it, MMA has no relationship to it. It's when I unplug and totally disconnect. I don't ever think about going there as like, this is good for my job, or um, this will help me doing the Monday morning analyst, or um, is this what happened in that fight? It's and maybe that's my own compartmentalized identity, but to me, it feels completely divorced from the rest of the world. Uh, it's not, but it feels that way. So there you go. But I'm only going to talk about BJJ insofar as I can take whatever I've learned and apply to something you actually care about. You know, uh, the arm bar that Pettis hit on Benthony, uh, or Ben Henderson or Adolfo Vieira getting heel hooked by Dean Lister in 2011 or something like that. But, you know, my personal life is irrelevant. Uh, all right, Overeem versus Roy Nelson. How do you see it going? Who gets put to sleep first? Um, and then, of course, our man, MJC flipped the script, Michael Carroll, who works at Fight Metric has the following statistics to offer, and then I'll sort of add some context to it. He says, quote, Overeem. Overeem lands 5.45 significant strikes per minute, the second highest rate in UFC heavyweight history. Uh, he's a victim of the third and fourth largest statistical comeback losses in UFC heavyweight history. But of course, those being Antonio Silva and Brown. Has spent 52.6% uh, of his UFC fight time in a position of control, either on the clinch or on the ground, the fourth largest proportion of control time in UFC heavyweight history. Nelson, on the other hand, absorbs 5.12 significant strikes per minute, the worst rate in heavyweight history. On the losing end of the second and seventh largest striking outputs in UFC heavyweight history, um, has absorbed a greater number of significant strikes, 555, than any heavyweight in UFC history. Seven KOs and TKOs, the fifth most in UFC heavyweight history, one behind tying for second place, actually. So, you know, it's like one, two, and then a bunch of these. Um, oh, by the way, Got the Barks diet. Um, so look, I think this could go one of two ways. I think that, or maybe I'll say one of three ways, but one of them being much less likely than the other two. I have a hard time believing that Alistair Overeem is going to get out there and bang with Roy Nelson, except maybe in the clinch. I can see him clinching up and in tight quarters really going to work on him, but that's not really a great way to put away Nelson. Um. If you want to strike with Nelson, you can, especially from the outside, but you need to have really fast hands, which Overeem has decently fast, but not crazy fast, and you have to have the ability to absorb damage, and I don't think that that's really um, a calling card for Overeem. So for me, it's going to be in tight quarters, either on the clinch and more likely scoop doubles and then on top. Um, similar to what you saw with Struve. Now, whether he can actually do that with Nelson is another issue, although Frank Mir was able to execute takedowns against the fence on Nelson with a relative amount of ease, although I think Nelson was allegedly sick for that fight. But I think the more likely outcome is that um, Nelson bangs him out at some point. I think Nelson's actually the underdog, if I'm not mistaken. Let me look at best fight odds. He may be whatever you think he is, but I mean, from an odds perspective, he is, yeah, he's the underdog. I'm not so sure I, I agree with that. 
I would favor Nelson to win. I mean, he might get scoop doubled and then banged out on the ground. I, I can certainly see that. I don't. I don't in any way say that's a remote possibility. But man, as long as that one stands on the feet, he's going to get walloped. Uh, the only issue there is, of course, can he defend the scoop double along the fence? That to me is more salient than uh, any other really consideration there, because I just don't see it as very likely that Overeem decides to stand at range with him, where Nelson is like super potent both defensively and offensively. By the way, shout-outs to Let's Get It On podcast with Big John McCarthy and Sean Wheelock. I listened to the first episode. Um, there's a lot in there, but the thing that I found most interesting was John McCarthy explaining the scoring of uh, Liam McGeary versus Emmanuel Newton. And the reason why is because he was talking about how you gauge as a judge the value of a submission attempt. Because as you recall, there were many submission attempts by McGeary that did not work. So, so what is their value? Well, it's not so clear, but he tries to sort of articulate ways in which you count those things and and where defense uh, matters and how it matters. And the reason why I bring it up in this particular case is not that I think there'll be a ton of submission attempts in Overeem versus Nelson, but rather he was trying to make the idea that like, you know, you say, well, look, look what happened with Emmanuel Newton. He escaped so many submissions. Shouldn't this count for something? And Big John McCarthy's point was like, yes, it does in a sense. You escape those submissions, you have earned the right to continue fighting, right? You have earned the right to not have this stopped. You have earned the right to have the, not the position formally reset, but reset wherever it may be from the escape. Um, that's your reward. The defense of the act is the reward itself. Much like if you've got a strong chin, like Roy Nelson does, and you take a shot, what's the reward? The reward is that you were able to take the shot and it didn't work to put you away, you are able to now continue fighting. The defense, I mean, that's not defense in and of itself. It's a form of defense. It's not, you know, closed um, willful defense. It's more sort of coincidental or, you know, genetic, whatever you want to call it. But that doesn't count for points towards a fight. So when you think of it, when you think of getting hit on the chin and have, but having a great chin as, um, you know, defense being its own reward, that should help them illuminate the conversation about how you judge submission attempts that don't actually work. Anyway, really good. Uh, all right. Is UFC 187 what you would consider an A-plus pay-per-view card? No. I'd consider it A or A-minus, not A-plus. And you can get sort of hairy with the definitions there. But just to recap, Jones versus Johnson, Weidman versus Belfort, Nurmagomedov versus Cerrone. First of all, that's worth the price of admission alone. Uh, Brown versus Arlovsky, Benavidez versus Moraga, Dawson versus Makovsky, Don Kyung Kim versus Josh Berkman, Uriah Hall versus Rafael Natal, Rose Nama Yunus versus Nina Ansaroff, Mike Pyle, Sean Spencer. Uh, I think it's uh, Islam Makachev versus, I don't know who Koontz is. And there you go, Justin Scoggins versus Josh Sampo. So to me, um, the Pyle Spencer and then the other uh, Makachev versus Koontz fight. Not so high on either of those. Scoggins versus Sampo, I think, is fine for an early prelim. So it's got a little bit of fat on it. And as a consequence, I can't give it an A+. But what I would say is this is certainly an excellent card. Um, again, I'm never going to tell you to buy or not buy, but it's hard for me to understand how you could be a modern MMA fan and not find this worth your money relative to what other things uh, are charged for in the space. So it's a pretty excellent card, just not quite A+. All right. Wait, I'm thinking of the wrong guy.
Is that Habib's cousin? Yeah. Yeah. yeah he's a beast, but we'll see. All right, PBC event from Saturday. Did you watch it? And if so, what's your take? I watched a little bit on it. Uh, and then someone says, also, it's inaugural event, had good ratings. For folks who didn't see, the ratings were pretty good. Um, it peaked around over 4 million and averaged in sort of the mid to uh, lower threes uh, on NBC. And folks are trying to say, like, what does this mean? Did it do a better rating than, than um, well, let me turn the AC on this thing. It's 1,000 degrees in here. Hang on one second, y'all. Apologies. There we go. This is better. I'm in, I'm in my boss's office, so first time in here, getting a little hot. I'll fix that in a minute. Um, let's talk about those ratings for just a second. They're very good ratings. There's no denying it. I think anyone who tells you otherwise is just foolish. Even Dave Meltzer was sort of talking about how it did like it did higher than the average UFC on Fox event, and in particularly had a little bit more than the average UFC on Fox event because it drew a lot more into that 55 and plus older male. Now, obviously, that's an audience that MMA does not get and probably won't ever, at least not anytime soon, until this generation ages. But I think to me, the interesting point here is that people will try to say, well, how would that compare to UFC on Fox's debut? And these are two things that I feel like are just really not compatible comparisons. I have a hard time. The more I think about it, the more I'm just like, I'm not really... I'm not saying no comparison was within bounds, but it has to be one that is very careful to the point where you're only getting just a slight amount of understanding between the two. So, for example, look, um, when UFC debuted on Fox, they had taken something that was going to go on, on major pay-per-view, and they had put it on Fox. It was one fight. It was like an hour long, um, and it did really good ratings. But it also had major institutional support because Fox and – UFC had a deal, but UFC was a major organization. PBC is just a name. It's not really a thing yet. It might end up being something, but it's more just a name. It's a franchise. It's not really a, you know, there's no PBC offices downtown in Vegas that are filled with, you know, a history of video library and, um, and deep infrastructure. It's, it's really not what it is quite yet. Um, and they have a deal with these other organizations like Spike TV on a very conditional basis. Much of these are, if not all of them, are time buys. Um, it's, so, so it's really not apples to, it's very much an apples to oranges scenario where you're not comparing like things in that regard. Um, certainly the average rating for UFC on Fox is lower, but you're not getting the premium product on, on, um, on Fox. You're getting this, like, just a tier under premium. And more to the point, PBC, you're getting their very best because there's no there's no other PBC on pay-per-view and that this is leading that towards. This is actually a move away from those things. So even from an organizational standpoint, even from a mission standpoint, even from a length of broadcast standpoint, uh, even from a talent standpoint, the first UFC on Fox was heavyweights. These are, you know, Broners and, uh, uh, you know, uh, and Molina. Uh, I think Guerrero and Jose Cito Lopez, you know, we're talking uh, much, I mean, half the size of Cain Velasquez, right? So, and of course, there's been other guys who have headlined Fox shows like Demetrius Johnson, but they've gone back to the heavyweight well. I just mean, until there's a lot of data, we don't know what the numbers are going to be like on Spike on Friday. We don't know what the numbers are going to be like when they go to NBC Sports. How is Lamont Peterson going to do when they go back to NBC? It's just not clear to me. Plus, it was their debut. So, I think that we just don't have enough data 
and we just had two radically different phenomena. We're trying to compare not so much boxing versus MMA exactly, but PBC is a fundamentally different thing than UFC with a fundamentally different relationship to the networks that it's on than UFC with a fundamentally different mission than what UFC is trying to do. UFC is trying to dr drive visibility, uh, trying to create stars, and then, and then leverage that into pay-per-view attractions. Remember Lorenzo Fertitta said before they signed the Fox deal, when this Fox deal is over, if they've added 100,000 pay-per-view subscribers, then they've already won, and the deal's been more than worth it. Now, whether they've done that or not, I think it's certainly up for debate, but that's that, that you can see where they're thinking about this. Get on TV, remain relevant, keep people interested, drive free content, but then also have a premium side that you really want to push people towards as well. PBC is just trying to push you back to boxing, back to what, who they have, to make the guys they have a little bit bigger, but to what end? There's no real deal beyond what they've bought. So it's, it's, it's radically different. And so in that sense, I'm very hesitant, at least at this stage, to offer up some kind of meaningful comparison between the two. Uh, true or false? Rousey could defeat every top 10 fighter in her division consecutively in one night. Probably true. Pettis beats BJ Penn and Benson Henderson's lightweight title defense record of four. I'll say true. Cerrone wins a round against Habib. He might just because of the layoff. Mir Lesnar 3 does over 1 million pay-per-view buys if it ever happens. It might. It might. I don't know. Esparza defends her title at least three times. I'll say sure. Uh, McGregor hurts Aldo. McDonald hurts Lawler. Johnson hurts Jones. And Belfour hurts Weidman. McGregor will definitely hurt Aldo. McDonald will probably hurt Lawler. Johnson's definitely going to hurt Jones. And I don't think Belfour's going to do much at all to Weidman. But, you know, MMA's crazy. A hypothetical matchups, Chris Weidman versus Daniel Cormier. I like uh, Weidman there. I know you're going to call me crazy, but I do. Anthony Johnson versus Fabrizio Verdum. I like Verdum. Verdum has a good way, uh, largely these days, of staying out of trouble. Uh, Henan Barral versus Chad Mendez. That's a funny one. Um, my favorite Mendez there. Tati versus Evans. I'll take Evans. Frankie Edgar versus Nurmagomedov. Nurmagomedov is way too big and way too skilled on the ground uh, for Edgar to be able to hang. Contrary to pre-event predictions, early reports indicate that UFC 184 did 500,000 or more pay-per-view buys. Is this attributed to Rousey stardom pay-per-view making a comeback given the buy rates of the last two events or both? I really don't think that it has much to do with pay-per-view making a comeback. Um such as it is. I don't think there's a comeback to be had. I think the way in which, look, I don't know why exactly pay-per-view has declined in the way that it has for all the parties involved. My hunch, and this is backed up in no way by research or evidence, I'm just trying to theorize about what may be happening. I just feel like the, one, I feel like cable is, you know, entirely expensive, but I don't know, in an age where you're paying for iTunes and you're paying for Spotify and you're paying for all these sorts of nickel and dime different operations in gaming, for example, especially if you're an Xbox user, you really get nickel and dime there. I feel like that has taken a chunk out of the disposable income that would go towards things like pay-per-view. I feel like pay-per-view hasn't been very interesting in some regards. Um, I also feel like, um, you know, without getting overly political, uh, you know, obviously middle-class incomes have not exactly risen over the last few years. So 
all of these things have declined in the ability for the average American consumer to then give money to pay-per-view. At least that's my hunch. There may be other reasons that you can pinpoint and identify. Um, so, so all those things to me working in concert have made pay-per-view less than it was, I think. But what we do know is pay-per-view is less than it was to some extent. But as I mentioned previously, if there's been a lesson that I think UFC is learning, whether it's because of the drug test failures, whether it's because of oversaturation, whether it's because of um, injuries, which may be the, the most chief component of all, what I think January 2015 has shown, and to a lesser extent, February 2015, if you go all in on pay-per-view, meaning you stack a card with the best that you can, um, with some exceptions that won't work, but with many it will, or you you really make it a point to um, give people the UFC product they're demanding, right? There's still gold to be mined at, at uh, in pay-per-view. Pay-per-view is not what it was, but it's far from dead. I think that's my takeaway from all of this. When the UFC puts their best foot forward, and of course getting Jones and Cormier is just a little bit of luck. I understand that. But they made Diaz versus Silva happen. I'm not talking about all the drug test failures and everything that came after that. I'm talking about just as a commercial activity. When you make that happen, when you get a little bit lucky, when you up your production value for UFC on Fox, when you give Conor McGregor a winnable fight and you promote the ever-living F out of him, when you put all that together, a rising tide lifts all boats, and it does allow you to move into the pay-per-view space, and I move into, but remain in there at a much more commercially viable level. It's just the truth. Now, with Rousey, I'm not exactly sure. I will admit that that one took me by surprise a little bit. I thought after the McCann fight, I don't know that I thought we hit our ceiling with her. I don't think that was true. Certainly, I thought if, a, if a, for example, a cyborg fight was ever made, that would do really well commercially. But I am surprised it did as well as it did. Um, and you could say, well, why would that be? Well, she's been getting a lot of mainstream and non-traditional press for, for her career essentially since she moved to the UFC and even before that in Strike Force, right? Um, why was this one any different? Here was my sense about things after the fact. If you were an MMA insider, you know, her appeal is multifaceted. On the one hand, everyone's like, well, everyone likes to see her because it's that, and I'm not trying to make the comparisons, I'm just trying to repeat what's out there. She got that Mike Tyson vibe, which is to say, how fast can she put away her opponents? I think some of that is true. I also think, though, that there was a bit of a disconnect, and there's always a range of opinions, and there's always a slight disconnect between hardcore and casual in terms of what they're anticipating. But I think with UFC 184, there was a major disconnect, which is to say the major disconnect for me was that hardcore fans really felt like Katzengana was a really credible talent, that she deserved her opportunity, that she had a really rough year. And I think many fans, and I, I just, certainly I believe this way, I think she can beat every person in that division not named Ronda Rousey pretty handily. I truly believe that. Uh, but I don't think many of us anticipated necessarily she was going to have a great chance against Ronda Rousey. Again, opinions differ, but if I had to just sort of gauge online reaction and gauge what I heard from talking to fans, there was a pretty strong sense that that was Rousey's fight to lose and, and to lose uh, not, not very easily. On the contrary, if you talk to people outside the bubble, there were many different opinions as well. But if I noticed a trend there, I think they believed in uh, the promotion of that fight. I have to give the UFC credit. They promoted that fight 
pretty interestingly. Um, and, you know, again, Rousey made it easier. I think Rousey's star continues to grow no matter what. But I would add that there was a belief, I think, much more so among casuals than hardcores, like to a significant degree, that this was a legitimate challenge. Again, understand what I'm saying. Some hardcores believe that too, and some casuals believe that Rousey was going to roll quickly. Opinions vary. But we're talking about trends and generalities. And so there was a bit of a disconnect there. I think there were many more casual fans who were anticipating a tougher challenge and there were you know two undefeated fighters that sort of thing and i think many hardcores were like eh, i don't know i don't think this is going to go that well but you know you never know and so as a consequence there may have been a little bit more interest than i think some of the more cynical among us me included were anticipating so it's so it's so the promotion of the fight i think rousey's legend especially after this fight i think she really took a turn after this fight she was always getting non-traditional press but there was Man, she, she angled off on this one a little bit differently. And I don't know if it was a consequence of the win plus the movie she's been in or all the press or all three, but her level of celebrity, I feel like, took a took a order of magnitude leap following this one. Dana White is so confident that MMA will be legalized in New York that he has an event planned for later this year. Also, some reports indicate the UFC is planning Lesnar versus Mir 3 at MSG for this NYC debut. What's your take on it, and do you think MMA can be legalized quick enough for an event to happen as soon as 2015? Um, there is certainly, I think it passed out of the uh, requisite Senate committee, maybe it's the Tourism Committee, I'm not sure exactly which one. Uh, Jim Jania is probably the better guy to talk to about you know, the legislative process, but which has to go through. Um, I've sort of, of course, read it a thousand times. I can't remember it anymore, but here's my sense about that. I have been given scoop after scoop for years by various players involved, MSG would never um, respond to any confirmation request about over the years, the UFC holding events at MSG, which is to say, I think even with all the, the setbacks, I think even with all of the issues they've had, the UFC has also maintained a relation. I mean, MSG is like super pro combat sports. You know, they've had glory there. They've had obviously a thousand boxing events there. Um, They've had, they do the, the, um, um, what's the, what's the uh, wrestling tournament they have there? Uh, grapple at the garden. They have the grapple at the garden there all the time now. And so, uh, they're very pro combat sports uh, for whatever reasons, God bless them. And I'm, uh, my understanding is that throughout the years, the UFC has still tried to reserve dates in case the legislative wins went their way. I've gotten, I can't tell you how many scoops from people on the inside about that. Um, again, MSG would never confirm them, so maybe that's not true, but I have pretty good reason to believe that it is, that they've tried to hold dates, and then when it didn't work, you know, by a certain point, they just let it go. But um, if they've done that, that is not a new thing. That's a ongoing thing. Title fights that never happened. If these title fights never fell through, who would have won at the time, and how close would the fight have been? What does that mean, at the time? Oh, uh, when they were announced, I see. Aldo Coke, Aldo. Jones Henderson, please, Jones. Barrow Cruz, um, I would say Cruz, but that's a tough one. Aldo Pettis, at the time, I don't know. Now I would say Pettis. Uh, Henderson Grant, Henderson. Cruz versus Faber, three, Cruz. That's easy, but it's a shame we missed those. You see over him surviving Roy Nelson as someone who dropped like a rock to Ben Rothwell. Does he stand a chance? 
I think it entirely depends on the game plan that he ha that he chooses. To me, this is not about what Roy Nelson is going to do. Roy Nelson sort of has a singular way of fighting, and for better or for worse, that's what it is. And many times, it has brought him glory. Many times, it, it, it has sort of limited him in what he's capable of reasonably doing. Um, Overeem can mix it up, and you saw that in the Strew fight. You've seen that in many fights, of course, but I think you saw it most recently in that Strew fight. If he can get in on you and he can get you taken down, old boy has some pretty ferocious ground and pound. Um, Nelson will be hard to put away like that, but he can at least win a couple of rounds to score a decision if, if there's a, a third one that's in um, dispute. So I don't know. It really depends on Overeem, but I do think this. I, I, if, if Overeem spends more than two minutes standing on the outside with him, I don't see how that ends well for him. The Hammer. Within the last 24 hours, it's become public that Mark the Hammer Coleman isn't doing too well. For those that haven't heard, you can go to his go. He has a GoFundMe page called Save the Hammer. It's linked here. I'm often proud of the MMA community when they ramp up efforts to help their own, whether it be Matt Grice with his accident, Dan Miller with his child's health issues, or any number of other instances. But I see a number of fans publicly shaming the UFC and Dana White for into dipping into their wallets to pay his medical bills. Explain just how much obligation you think the UFC and Dana have in helping Coleman. Um, it's a strong word, obligation. So if you haven't heard, Mark Coleman is desperately ill, and I have to have like a hip replacement surgery. I had an, all kinds of like I think he had a, a, a deep infection, and and he's in he's in a, he's in a bad way. And so I think Wes Sims, who used to be a member of Hammer House, set up a GoFundMe page, and they're looking for twenty thousand. They've already raised like four thousand. Um, yeah, this is interesting. Well, look, I mean, it's a hard one to answer. Because I think the word O is very, very strong, right? Um, it's tough. What does the UFC owe these guys generally? How long do you have to stay around and be a fighter before there is some kind of long-term plan they have to give you? Is that even financially viable? Can the UFC exist if that's the kind of obligation that they owe these guys? Um, I don't know the answer to that. I would also say, I think the word O just bothers me a little bit. I don't know that they owe him anything. Now, that being said, whether or not they owe him may not be the most relevant consideration. Um, in part because the UFC can't help out every fighter who has financial difficulty that may have had a previous business relationship with them at some time. Now, Mark Coleman is a little bit different. Mark Coleman, of course, uh, Hall of Famer, had a relationship with UFC pre-Zufa with the SEG company, obviously uh, heavyweight champion, tournament winner, all, all kinds of different accolades you can heap on Mark Coleman. But then he left and went to Pride. Had a couple of, I mean, how many fights did he have after he came back? So he fought Bonner. He fought Couture. Uh, who else? Did, am, I, am I forgetting somebody? Who else did he fight? Obviously, he was on the Ultimate Fighter 14 as a wrestling coach. He's an adored figure. Oh, yeah, he fought Shogun. God, I forgot about that. Jesus, he fought. Oh, that was a terrible fight. Yeah, so he fought Shogun. So he had those three fights after he left and went to Pride. You know, um, yeah, that's interesting. Um, I don't know. I don't know what they owe him. Does USA Wrestling owe him something? Um, Pride's defunct. Does Pride owe him something? I think to to me, just putting the conversation as a matter of oh. It sounds intellectually appealing, like, oh, it's, you know, 
uh, look what this guy did for you. You you have to pay him back. But you know, there I'm not so sure I buy that argument. Um, exactly, at least not without a clear sense about how we're defining owed. For me, however, uh, I think what is compelling is the idea that forget the PR of it, although there will certainly be a benefit there. Um, you know, whether or not you owe him, there is something to be said for um, so the humanitarian angle. I, I don't know. I don't know exactly. I, I have a hard time with the idea that they owe him anything. He has an important relationship to the UFC, but much of it was pre-Zufa. Um, he's in a he's in a bad way. Here's what I would say. In many ways, Mark Coleman revolutionized the sport. And I think in many ways, um, Mark Coleman helped make the UFC take, you know, many requisite steps to get where it is today. He was responsible for many of those foundational ones. And so in that sense, it would seem to me that UFC, who has the financial capability to help someone of that kind of importance, would, I, I, I would be surprised if they're reluctant to help someone on that kind of situation. You know, this is not some guy who had maybe just three fights with UFC and then decided he, you know, he was, he was irresponsible with his medicine or maybe some of the tragedy befell him and, and he was required to do something on their own. But for me, it's like uh, part of the UFC's success, even post-Zufa, is predicated on the kind of contribution that Mark Colvin built. And so whether or not they owe it to him is up for debate, but it would certainly seem to be a full circle moment to then help this person out in a time of need when he was so relevant for the UFC's ability to be who they are today and for the sport's ability to be what it is today, both from his technical innovations and what it meant for an Olympi Olympian to be a part of what MMA was back then and everything else. It seems like if you're going to help out anyone, and I think more than anything else, it's, um, it's a function of help, not, not debt, um, uh, he would be your top candidate. Right. Look, if you're asking me if I was in the UFC, would I help this guy? I mean, the answer is yes, like unequivocally. I, well, I wouldn't even hesitate. You know, uh, I just need to be careful about the using the word "oh" only because maybe Mark Coleman is owed that. But if we use the word "oh," I don't want to end up on a slippery slope where we're. And I'm pretty pro fighter. You guys know that. I don't want to end up on a slippery slope where we're putting Zufa in a financial position that is so encumbering. Um, that it no longer makes sense. I think that's my only real issue. But if you're asking if someone like Mark Coleman is worthy of our assistance, I mean, if Mark Coleman isn't, I, I have a hard time understanding who is. That's a sh I mean, I wish, you know, it sucks. Uh, why do so many people want to see Ronda Rousey get beat up by a man? I mean this question seriously. I have my theories about this topic, why it won't go away, but what do you think about the whole discussion? Um, I think it's a little bit of male insecurity. I think people want to see her humbled because she hasn't been by other women. And so they're like, well, look, you know what a man could do. And so whether that's true or not, and it may in fact be, they want to use that as like this ultimate moment of reckoning. Like, see, this is what we're really dealing with. Y'all could enjoy her as long as you understand what the limits of that are, uh, which isn't necessarily the worst idea in the world, except that it shouldn't be a man doing that. So I think it's a little bit of insecurity. I think it's a little bit of the idea that they were tired of. There is a little bit of like a legend growing around her. Everyone was, you know, I remember after, after that BJ Penn video, almost was like, oh my God, she beat BJ Penn. I'm like, mm, but she didn't actually. Uh, that doesn't in any way demean what she is capable of doing. It just means that's not what happened. 
as a function of, of fact. Um, so, you know, that to me is the issue here. Everyone's kind of tired of the, the let, not kind of, or not everyone, but there is some fatigue with the idea of, you know, she's being like held up to this impossible standard that she shouldn't be held up to. That's frankly unfair to her because she's awesome and she's amazing and should be celebrated on those terms, not these other ones. But I think that there's a little bit of some people want to see her get humiliated because she hasn't been yet. But in MMA, if you stay in long enough, someone will. So just stick around. Have you ever considered answering these in the order of the most wrecks? No, but if something has a lot of wrecks, I try to answer it. Uh, your ultimate fighter. If you could create your ultimate fighter, whose characteristics would you choose? Knockout power. Uh, knockout power. Who has a great knockout power? Igor Volchanchin had a great knockout power. Um, I don't know if that's the best example, but maybe old Igor, prime Fedor, um, prime Phil Baroni. Y'all forget about prime Phil Baroni giving old Dave Manet the business. Go back and check that out. Um, something like that, maybe even over him to an extent. Uh, MMA wrestling, I'd probably pick John Jones. Clinch, I'd probably pick Anderson. Head kick, maybe Krokop or Anthony Pettis. Body kick, definitely Pettis. Leg kicks, Aldo, footwork, uh, Cruz, BJJ. Who's got great BJJ? Probably BJ Penn. Fighter IQ, Jones. And then personality, McGregor. Uh, Two-parter. Thoughts on Babalu versus Chael. This will take place at Metamorphosis 6. Yeah, so it looks like uh, Babalu. I mean, what's interesting about Metamorphosis is these aren't, there aren't prolonged takedown battles. Guys are obviously, because it's jiu-jitsu, pure jiu-jitsu, they're much more willing to pull. And especially, I don't think, I mean, Babalu might be able to take down Chael, which will be interesting to see because Babalu can actually wrestle a little bit. So that might be kind of interesting. Um, and that to me is what you really want to focus on. If Babalu doesn't pull and he actually gets Chael down, Chael's going to be in trouble then because then he can just easily drop for a heel. If, if, uh, if he pulls, I wonder if he'll move to deep half I wonder if he'll try to invert, um, but I don't see how Babalu loses. It might go to a draw, but I don't see how Babalu loses that one. And I like Chell a lot, but I mean, look, Chell's, you know, give him credit. He's out there competing against guys who are much better than him. He was, he got what? A, he's under Fabio Schoener. He's a purple belt. I mean, Babalu's been a black belt for years, you know. There's a big difference between the two, man. Trust me. So, uh, I know Chael's a great wrestler, but Babalu's not so bad himself. And, um, yeah, that'll be interesting. Uh, instead of a super heavyweight title match, say, Barnett versus Lister, would you rather see the main event be an absolute championship, say, Barnett versus Galvan? Yeah, I think that'd be awesome. By the way, there was talk about Barnett versus Cyborg Abreu. Um, just keep that in mind. Not hating on the heavyweights because Barnett tapping Lister was awesome. But I'd personally rather see this than a no-name winning a Secret Gracie closed-door tournament. I agree. I think the secret match is interesting to me, but I'd rather just them have something they can promote. Um, the secret match is a is a is a. I like Metamorphosis because they're trying to innovate all the time, and they're trying different things, and they're trying fun things, and they're trying new things. And the secret match is cool. But I would rather. I mean, Roberto Satoshi versus Jake Shields. I would have just rather have that bet, that been promoted. To be perfectly honest. 
Um, but at the same time, you know, I mentioned the point before, if you take two of those guys and they do no gi and they're, and they know they're going to face each other and Jake Shields is awesome, by the way. Um, in a rematch though, I think the rematch would be much more boring because Jake Shields might still do really well, but Satoshi would do a lot better. Satoshi is primarily a gi player. He does do some no gi, but if he could really just train nothing but no gi, uh, his defenses would be a lot better. So for me, it's like I'm not necessarily opposed to mismatches in Metamorphs. It's not complete mismatches down the card, but a couple of wild cards where someone's got some long odds stacked against them or there's an interesting dynamic of maybe a weight disparity or something like that, you know, uh, a meow versus a heavyweight or, you know, something like that, although we kind of saw that versus John Fitch a little bit. But um, – uh, I think it was Paulo Meow. Maybe it was Joan, but it was either Paulo Meow against uh, uh, John Fish. That was like a big stall stall session. Um, not on John's part. So I don't know. I don't know. But um, if they, if but I think the big takeaway for me with Meta Morris is first of all, again, twenty minutes is not enough for no no uh, just submission only. Just doesn't work. Go to any submission only tournament. The matches routinely go forty five minutes to an hour for high level black belts. Um, but the other part is that if you get two guys like a Yuri Samois and then a Keenan Cornelius and they're competing with geese on for 20 minutes, they're just going to cancel each other out. So you got to shake it up a little bit. You got to you got to throw in a couple of wild cards. You got to get someone with a weight disparity or a skill disparity, but maybe with a weight advantage, something like that to to make it kind of interesting. Or just take away time limits for the main event. Uh, I've heard they're trying something different. Are they? Oh, no. Let me back that up. I have heard they're entertaining the idea of doing some things different in terms of the time limits um, for at least one of the matches, if not a minute more six than at some point in the future. But I don't, I can't say that's ever been, um, that's ever been um, confirmed. By the way, here's a bit of a scoop if you want it. Um, I believe Polaris Jiu-Jitsu, remember them? They're like similar to Metamorphs. Uh, they're over in England. Uh, I believe they are trying to lock up Gary Tonin versus Mazakazu Imanari, if I'm not mistaken. If I'm not mistaken. Direction of MMA. Four Rex, okay. Do you ever feel disillusioned with the state of MMA? I feel that defensive wrestling and grappling generally has gotten so good that fights are now at the highest level, predominantly striking matches with the occasional takedown attempt. Think of Hendricks versus Lawler 1, for example. It was entertaining fight, but almost entirely contested on the feet. That's fine, but it is true that MMA fighters are inferior strikers compared to boxers and kickboxers, and what you're watching is a striking match between two guys who are not naturally strikers. That's true. It's a flawed analogy, but it would be sort of like Floyd Mayweather and Manny Pacquiao taking a BJJ for a few years and then rolling competitively, entertaining, sure, but not the best use of their talents. Not sure if there's an explicit question here because I'm on the phone and suck at writing. <laughs> Uh, but you know, you can get something from it. Uh, I'm a little bit concerned about it. Sure. I'm a little bit concerned because the reality is jujitsu has actually never been better. Um, you know, there's a lot of discussion within the community about street versus self-defense and whether or not there's enough BJJ focus on street defense. I think the, the answer to that is there's probably not enough focus, but I would also say that if you train long enough and you get competent enough, even at the sport stuff, you won't or, you know, it is unlikely you will lose in a street context. You know, if you get a good purple belt, you know, not even super athletic, but, you know, a credentialed purple belt, you know, you're going to get walloped. It's just it's just not going to happen for you. There's just so many things they can do that you just won't see coming, even with punches. Um, again, exceptions abound, of course, but um, 
So, you know, I mean, even if they do a barambolo on you, like, what are you going to do, you know? Do what, one or two hammer fists before they're on your back? And then once they're on your back, bro, it's it's bad news for you. So, um, so I, 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 I'm, 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 you know, semi-sympathetic to the argument. I think with MMA, in terms of that context about whether or not it's diverse enough, I do believe a correction is owed. I do believe a correction is owed. Not so much... Um, how do we get to the point where guys are using more of the skills they're good at because the rules encourage them to? Well, I mean, that means the rules have to change slightly. And even if we can't get there uh, right away, maybe we can get to a point where certainly um, we enforce stalling in ways in the stand-up portion that forces a diversification of, of the contests. Um, I, I, I certainly believe that that is an opportunity for us, but I, I wouldn't point to Hendricks as Lawler as like the ultimate example. And even with, with a year like last year where our submissions were, I mean, maybe on the decline, you still had things like Hatsuhiyoki and um, Oliveira, Charles Oliveira, which was an incredible use of submissions. I still think you see good guillotines. You still see good rear naked choke attempts. Maybe not what they once were, but, you know, submissions are hard. Um, but also, you know, I think it will just force jiu-jitsu to get better. Jiu-jitsu uh, is certainly going in one direction, like the sports side, and maybe that's a natural thing that was going to happen anyway as people just continue to innovate and iterate. I also think, though, that, like, the growth of the Eddie Bravo Invitational and the growth of Polaris and the growth of Metamoris and the growth of general awareness about, for example, the Pan Ams being this weekend, all these sorts of things, I think, are also a reaction to the fact that people do want to see some level of jiu-jitsu. There is interest in the sport, however minimal it may be. Uh, and if you're not getting that from MMA, you can certainly get that in the purest context. There might be some kind of reaction that's happening there. So if you're not getting an MMA, I'm not saying you're wrong. I think that stalling and actually stand-up portions um, and a rule change is necessary to get those things to, to, to happen. How likely that is, I don't know. But I still find ways to get my fixes. Does that make sense? I may have to search outside of the sport, and that's lamentable, and that doesn't necessarily address your direct question, but at least it provides some measure of a solution in the short run about ways in which we can meaningfully enjoy grappling in a combat sports context. Uh, if a Titan, Titanoboa, fights a T-Rex, who wins and why? Depends on the size of the T-Rex, but I'm going to go with the Titanoboa because that looks terrifying. Pick a winner. Jones versus Dos Santos. I'm going to say Jones. Rumble versus Weidman. Rumble versus Weidman. That's a good one. That's a great fight. Man, Chris Weidman has a lot of awesome fights at 205 if he wants them. Um, obviously, he's got some tough fights in middleweight too, but I'm just saying. Maybe Rumble? Maybe Weidman? I, that's a tough I don't know. That's a tough one. Brock versus Cormier. Cormier will eat his lunch. Gustafson versus Machida. Hmm, maybe Machida. Rory versus Rockhold. Rockhold. Vitor versus Lawler. Lawler. Pettis versus Hendricks. Uh, I might go Pettis, but we'll see. Aldo versus Habib. Habib, son. All day, player. <laughs> Dillashaw versus Mighty Mouse. Uh, it's a tough one, man, because I was there for that Cruz fight. 
um, with Mighty Mouse, but Cruz is obviously very different. I don't know. I could see Mighty Mouse winning that one, to be honest. The big if. If Brock did come back and his first fight was versus Frank Mir, who takes it and how? I really don't know. I don't really know what Brock Lesnar looks like these days. I mean, I've, you know, you can see him if you want on uh, whatever programs he's on, on in, in professional wrestling. But, I mean, MMA, I mean, the guy hasn't been doing any MMA training. I mean, I'm, I'm sure he stays in, like, good physical shape. Like, he's in the weight room, and, and he gets his runs in when he has to. But, you know, his team's been entirely disbanded. Everyone's moved on from it. I don't know the answer to that question. That's a really tough one. Uh, that's, cause that's sort of the appeal of it because you have, you have Frank Mir, who you have a much clearer sense about where he is. Um, but, you know, understanding he's in a diminished state relative to his peak and when he was facing Lesnar for certain. And then you have Brock, who you would also imagine has declined, but to what extent? Because he always held the comparative advantage over Mir. Um, it's, or in some cases, the absolute. It's tough. It's really, it's, it, it makes the fight intriguing in a way. I mean, it's, you know, it's not the most amazing fight in the world, but um, something to be said for it. Would a card headlined by Brock versus Mir do over 500k buys? Well, that one I would say yes. Uh, how tight are you and Chael really? Please explore the depth of your relationship to include first conversation, first dance, and first embrace. Well, I don't think we've had the dance or the embrace, uh, but I think our first conversation was on the set of MMA Uncensored after I had written something about him. He was a guest, and we had talked from there. Uh, you know, we don't like talk on the weekends or anything. Uh, I occasionally have a question for him, which I'll seek out. He will occasionally have a question for me, which he will seek out. And uh, that's about it. BJ Penn's career if he got the nod in the first Edgar fight. Edgar's career if he didn't. I know this is a counterfactual that's hard to really answer, but do you think BJ's career trajectory would have gone the same way it did after he lost that controversial decision, it feels like I never, after that day, saw a motivated BJ Penn. Even in the actual fight, how negatively do you think that coin flip shaped MMA history and changed both guys' legacies? I can't understate how important. That's a great question. Can't understate how much I think it affected him. And it affected the lightweight division. Now, I don't think in the end, uh, if Penn had retained it, would he have beaten Benson Henderson? You know, well, let me correct this. Would he have beaten Benson Henderson in the eyes of the judges? I don't know. So in some ways, I feel like there was maybe a, a correction that was going to come for Penn no matter what. But to your point, um, you can look at that moment when that decision is read, and you can just see how nothing ever truly recovered after that. I mean, I think he had the Matt Hughes win after that, if I'm not mistaken. Let me just sort of verify. I can't even keep any dates or facts straight anymore. But let's see here. Yeah, so he had the Matt Hughes win, and then he had the John Fitch draw where he looked good for two rounds and just got smoked in the third and then never recovered after that. So, yeah, uh, it's, it's a weird moment. And of course, that Matt Hughes was like a, as a welterweight fight, and Matt Hughes was severely diminished too. So who knows, but... Um, I think the thing to keep in mind, though, was that even if he had beaten Edgar, who was going to be the next contender that would likely have taken the title from him, and it was going to be the one that was going to be there anyway, which was Benson Henderson. I just feel like 
Benson probably would have, t- would have would have beaten him too. Just from just from fi- just from offensive output, Penn had certainly achieved enough. And then the problem with being like these natural fighters, quote unquote, of which I think Penn certainly is, is I think that uh, I think that those guys their passion for fighting burns quicker. And you get the ones who are you know who can answer the call to violence and are sportsmen, but get the balance a little bit more even. Uh, my hunch is that they have a, a little bit more longevity in terms of their hunger. Got a pen faded fast, you know, in that sense. Burn bright and then faded fast. Well, I watch the M1 night fights religiously. I've never seen one. I've literally never seen one. And I won't start now. I don't care about dumb gimmicks. Like, it just doesn't... I mean, if y'all want to see it, great. It's there for you, you know. I, I'm not here to take it away, but... What do you make of Jones offering Machida help to prepare for Rockhold? Uh, Jones's comment that UFC 182 post-fight uh, press conference or, um, yeah, alluded to there being a rivalry between AKA and Jackson's. Well, there might be a little bit. Obviously, um... The camps have squared off more most recently with Cormier and Jones. Uh, Luke Rockle not having very positive things to say about John Jones. Um, I think John Jones, even though he beat Machida in the way that he did, respects Machida. Machida never talked bad about him or has ever said anything bad about him. Um, I thought Machida won the first round against Jones, personally. So there's probably a little bit of like, whoa, had an interesting moment there. But I was that was the first moment he ever really got touched before the Gustafson bout, uh, and you know he's a he's a martial artist, and so I think that not in the division anymore. F those guys over at AKA. Yeah, I don't make much of it. Seems seems uh, I doubt that you know Machito will take him up on it, but there's that. Uh, any news on Bushesha and when he'll get into the jump to MMA? I don't know. I don't even know if he's competing at the Pan Ams this weekend. I need to see. Hari in glory. Um, I don't know what the issue there is. I think he has a contract with K1 maybe or someone else. I don't know what the issue is with Hari in glory. I can try to find out, but I won't be going to the uh, Dubai show. I'll be covering uh, um, UFC of Fight Night 63 here in Fairfax. I have to pick up my credential for that at 930 in the morning. <laughs> I mean, I don't mind. In fact, I, I love it, but I've never, it's like so weird for me to do that. You know, first fight's at 1030 in the morning. It's going to be awesome. Fight's going to be over by 4 p.m. I can go out and get hammered that night. All right. Does women's MMA give MMA in general a bad name? Is that a serious question? Look, I watched UFC 184 with some people who had never really seen MMA before, and I couldn't but notice that many of them commented after the main event with remarks such as, that fight was so sloppy, or... That cat girl had no clue what she was doing. I even heard a few people saying that boxing was better and that any comparison between Ronda and Tyson was ludicrous. What are your thoughts? Well, I don't care about the last part. Um, Here's what you have to kind of face a little bit, y'all. Kind of have to face it. Uh, How do I say this correctly? (laughs) So we've talked about Invicta doing the work of helping to organize the sport and give it the architecture that it needed to then have the development that was necessary. And then we talked about 
once they got that process started and then they handed it over to the UFC, the UFC then had a role to play in further nurturing that process, right? The UFC is still doing that, even for the two divisions they have at strawweight and bantamweight. They're still nurturing them to a point where they're fully formed. We're not even bordering on fully formed. And what that means is, as talented, relatively speaking, as Kat Zingano is, and she is, absent Ronda Rousey, if Rousey went to judo and then stayed in bartending or went on to get an office job somewhere, Kat Zingano's your bantamweight champion of the world, if you ask me. Okay, I think she beats Bech Correa. I think she probably beats Holly Holm. I don't know, maybe it might be tougher, but she beats uh, uh, Jessica I. Okay, these are all, these, all competitive anyway. Um, but I think the, the takeaway for me there is that when someone looks at what Kat Zingano did in terms of how she approached that fight, I, I think you're totally right to have an argument to say, well, look, okay, if, you don't, if you're not going to give Ronda Rousey credit, then there's a problem. But if you want to at least say, you know, if you're, to, if you're a total, look, if you want to find a total skeptic, and you want to convince them about the legitimacy of MMA, both as a technical endeavor, both as an uh, athletic endeavor, I would never show them that fight. I would never show them that fight. Not because Ronda Rousey doesn't look good. She does. But a skeptic can take away from her performance by looking at what Kat Zingano did. And I like Kat Zingano a lot. I completely respect her. I am not trying to be demeaning in any capacity whatsoever, but there is a clear issue there with not so much how hard she trained and how bad she wanted it and how much she may deserve it, but there is a clear problem with the game planning there, a substantial problem with the game planning there. Right, there's just no way around it. That wasn't. That was a. That uh, It is hard to justify that decision under any capacity whatsoever. And those are like, well, she started slow. She tried to fix it. An overcorrection is not a correction. An overcorrection is another error, just in a different way, just in a completely different way. Um, and so, what I mean to tell you is, in ten years. If the women's bantamweight division is still around, and I expect it'll be, you will never see that in a title fight. I've never seen a UFC title fight like that in any in, in the modern era, certainly anyway. Maybe maybe ever. So I think these women are talented. Again, move Rousey outside of it. I think these women are talented. I think they're the best we've got right now. Um, and I think that they, I'm so glad they're here. I enjoy watching them. I think they're very, very skilled women and athletes, and they deserve to be taken seriously. But you also have to understand in that context, there is so much further to go for them before they're at a level where they're even applying the certain standards necessary to win at the men's game. They're not even doing at the women's game the basics of what you need to do to even compete at the men's game. That's sort of a problem that you just have to fundamentally accept, and maybe Rousey is. Everyone talks about, well, Rousey has all these skills. She does. She also has great planning. <laughs> she has great planning. She has great technical strategies picked out for all these different portions of the game. She competes like you're supposed to compete at the highest level, irrespective of gender. She also happens to have a series of skills that are hard to deal with. And the two in concert is what's making her hard to beat. 
It's not that she's walking out there like, I'm just going to figure it out as I go. And then, you know, uh, does her judo. doesn't work that way. She has a plan based on, on, on the science of the – this is science. This is the science of the game. If you go in there just like, I'm just going to figure it out, you are not going to win at the highest level unless there is an accident. Just the way things go, man. So, so I'm not here to justify people who want to slam MMA. I'm not here to justify people who want to slam women's MMA. To answer your question, women's MMA does not give MMA in general a bad name. I still think the level is very, very high. I think bouts like Carlos Sparza versus Rose Namajunas are awesome. I think what Rose Namajunas did on The Ultimate Fighter can be shown to the skeptics I was talking about before. But if I was a skeptic, or I at least had a friend who was a skeptic, I would not show them that fight, at least not first. There's many other fights I would show them and then get to that because there is a fundamental capacity about the, the focus and the planning missing in women's MMA that needs to be there before it looks like the men's game. And, I'm, you know, I love women's MMA, but that is a huge component that is missing. Hendrix is not working with Dolce for UFC 185. Any reason for this? Obviously, they had a falling out. I mean, there's no, there's not, there's not a lot to discuss there. Rousey versus Cyborg. I'm confused as to why this fight cannot happen at a catchweight or 145. If the, if this is the fight everyone wants to see, Dana White says, if you want to fight the champ, you have to make the weight. However, I seem to remember Forrest and Bonner not having to make 185 to fight the champ, Anderson Silva. Why is this any different? Um. Yeah, I don't buy that either. Now, I think part of it is just posturing. Oh, well, we're going to say these things so that um, we can have better negotiating power. Never forget that. You know, this is all part of a public gambit to to get the best terms possible for an eventual deal. So that's part of it. Um, but this is what I was talking about before, where you know everyone's like, "Oh man, these boxing titles don't mean anything. Doesn't that hurt the sport?" And I think that in here's what I would say to that. The UFC system of making their titles matter and making their weight classes matter is the preferred system. That is better than what boxing does. Fact. I mean, I don't see how anyone could deny it. It creates so much more uh, intrigue. It's so much easier to understand. It makes the title so much more valuable. Um, the way the UFC treats them, not just from, by creating these divisions, but by the way in which they promote them through pay-per-view. I mean, they give it a certain kind of flair and polish that they deserve. So I prefer the UFC system to the way in which boxing works via the sanctioning bodies. Let me make that absolutely fundamentally clear. However, no system is perfect and every system has a bug in it. Um, and one of the bugs of the UFC system, such as it is, while I prefer it and while I, if I had to create an organization, if I had to pick which way to go for the sport, I would stick with what the UFC's got. There's a flaw in it. And the flaw in it is that when you have these titles that mean something um and rousey is kind of stuck to it she's kind of stuck to it because if the title didn't mean anything yeah she could just go and compete against cyborg at whatever weight and uh and no one would care oh she she didn't compete for her wba title or she did and lost it it wouldn't matter but there's a certain kind of um um I don't know what the word is exactly. There's a certain kind of special relationship a fighter has with that title when they when they do that is worth preserving, an aura that they're trying to preserve. And I think that gets diminished when you lose to someone even at a different way. Now, I think 
partly those concerns are overstated. I think if they held it at 140 or 145, everyone, you know, and you made the fact that you're talking about a fight that's not for a UFC title, that Rousey is coming up a weight class, um, I think everyone would understand. So I think partly these concerns are a little bit just not real, or, or, or I should say are given too much credit. But I also, I also understand that um, you can't play with these titles in the way like, – like when Pacquiao went up and fought Margarito, it didn't matter. It's like oh, whatever titles are there or aren't there, it's irrelevant. Just go up and fight this guy junior middleweight or whatever it was. You know, it's like whatever. Who cares? It doesn't matter. There's a certain flexibility allowed under that system. Now, that system's got a ton of other bugs. But the one upside to that is that you can mix and match and move guys around and wait without the same, and, and even if they're title holders, without the same kind of seriousness attached to that title. But, you know, to answer your question, like, do I think they can make the fight at 140, 145 without much issue uh, affecting Rousey? I personally would not be too worried about that. Plus, I might even favor her to win at this point. Leg kicks. Uh, I've been wondering about leg kicks for a while now. How come in some fights a fighter can get dominated by having their leg repeatedly kicked and in other fights, leg kicks are seemingly easily nullified because the other fighter picks up his leg and puts his shin out. A good example is when Uriah Faber fought Jose Aldo and got dominated. And then when his teammate Chad Mendes fought Aldo the last time, leg kicks were not an issue at all, even though it was pretty much a Muay Thai fight. I mean, why, you know, what happens when you check a kick? Uh, a lot of people are saying Chad's legs would take a beating from Aldo beforehand, and they are saying the same thing now before the McGregor fight. Well, yeah, if you check kicks, guys are going to be more reluctant to throw them. If you don't, then they're going to keep going. I'm going to try to answer that question. Nutrition, RD role in MMA, research and development. Oh, no, credentialed already, registered dietitian. Look, I know a lot of nutritionists credentialed for RD as well as ACSM or NSCA certifications. I presented a bunch of them with the idea of cutting weight, and the universal answer I get is ignoring sound science behind weight will ultimately lead to poor performance in the short run and irreparable damage to the body in the long term. Instead of pondering when the idea of NCAA wrestling's weight-cutting regulations will trickle into MMA, when do you think fighters will take the initiative to hire more sound, qualified scientific professionals to educate on healthier physiology decisions when they have the money to do so? And not until then. Did you guys see the um, episode two of the UFC 185 Embedded? Yeah. Anthony Pettis has a nutritionist who comes over and cooks at his house. You know, you know why? Because he's on the cover of Wheaties now. I bet he wasn't doing that when he was uh, fighting in the WEC. Huh? How would you get unbanned from Bloody Elbow? Uh, I recommend that you write the person who banned you and ask for an unbanning, and that typically works. Someone says, I got banned just from being banned in the past. I created a new account and behaved just fine, no BS. Then three months later, I'm banned because I started a new account. Yeah, you can't start multiple accounts. There you go. Three do's and don'ts as an MMA journalist. Uh, three do's. Um, make sure you read and listen to everything you can from other journalists. Uh, that's one do. Do try to get some training. Not necessary. I don't say it's pos you know, required, 
but it is very helpful. At least one year of training under your belt. Not required, but if you can do it, do it. Um, one more do. Um, try to create value add in the media marketplace. What are you doing differently that is really missing that you can add to the conversation with? Don't uh, be a sycophant to promoters. Don't be overly insulting to fighters. You can be critical of them, but don't be insulting. And don't back down to people you don't need to back down to, even if they're powerful. I was asking the biggest update you ever predicted, and you know, was it Silva versus Weidman? Here's the funny thing about Silva Weidman. Silva Weidman was not some like major thing I got right. I mean, if someone whoever called Nogueira over Sukaju would be a much bigger uh, odds upset. It wasn't that Weidman was this massive underdog. I mean, he was an underdog, I think. Let me see what it finally was for uh, old Mr. Weidman. Let's see. What was the final odds on that donk? Let's see. Let's see. Yeah, so he was only plus 165, plus 18, plus 235, and then again, plus 145, plus 155, plus 175 in the second fight. So he was an underdog both times. But um, it wasn't that he was a massive underdog. I'm sure there's other ones I've, I've predicted, uh, both wrong and right, but at least in the case of right, that were bigger, bigger upsets. That wasn't the issue. The issue for me was that the even with the odds being what they were, there was, I never received, like, usually when I do predictions, right or wrong, people say what they're going to say. I, I got hate mail for that one. I got attacked on Twitter, like, relentlessly about it. I'd never seen that ever, 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 ever. Like, the very idea that, you know, it's a prediction. So who cares what I say? What I say doesn't make things come true. Believe me, I wish it was that case. It's not. Um, so, so that was a special one for me because it was like, I had to go out of my way to justify it. If you look at the write-up, it was super long. And people lost their mind over it. I'd never seen anything like it. People, I remember, go look at the first comment of that UFC 162 prediction thread. There's this guy like talking about at length about what an idiot I am for picking uh, Wyman over Silva. You know, like this is the problem with MMA media. Those are these sweeping generalizations, and he was totally wrong the whole time. You know, um, it was crazy. It was the, the it was the it wasn't the pick. It was the reaction to the pick that was just totally unprecedented. Totally unprecedented. Let's see. Um, da -da 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 -da. Okay, one of the biggest talking points in MMA, and in particular the UFC, over the past uh, two years, roughly longer than that, but okay, say so I'd say closer to three or four years at this point, has been the sheer number of UFC cards that have fallen apart due to injuries. Injuries are absolutely an unavoidable aspect of the sport, and the UFC should be commended for introducing an insurance policy which covers every athlete having a contract, okay? But has this policy indirectly led to the spat of withdrawals we've seen over the past few years? I can't tell you that how many fits and starts I've had with trying to study MMA injuries. If anybody out there wants to study MMA injuries with me, please contact me, luke.thomas at espionation.com. And I don't mean somebody who's got nothing to offer. Like, hey, I just want to do something. You know, if you've got some skills, please, you know, if you know how to do stats or you can compile research or something like that. No one has, I mean, there's been some small stuff done by independent guys, but none of it's been verified. No one's truly done a study on injuries in mixed martial arts in any kind of revelatory way. It has not been done yet. I'm sorry, it hasn't. In any kind of truly scientific, rigorous way. And I have tried uh, three times now, 
And one time I came up with a issue because we didn't have funding. And then another time we came up because we didn't have the data and all kinds of stuff. Uh, it's a huge problem. It's a huge problem that I need help to solve. But if you either have a lot of money or a lot of resources or a lot of time, we should work together because it's something that desperately needs to be done that isn't. And to answer your question about whether or not there is a meaningful correlation between the insurance policy and an uptick in injuries, I can't possibly answer that. I can't because we don't have any data and it'd be completely irresponsible to speculate as to whether that's the case. Thoughts on your J-Chick, or Young J-Chick, however you pronounce it. It was revealed in the first episode of Embedded that Joanna has upwards of 30 or so Muay Thai fights with an 8-0 record in MMA. Do you think she can hold a title and be a dominant champion? I don't think she's going to win, and I don't think she's going to be a dominant champion, but more to your point, I think she is much more of a likable character for women's MMA at 115 pounds. I feel bad for Carla Esparza because I really I like her as a champion. I really admire her. Um, I think it's unfortunate, but I think the focus on I don't first of all I don't think she's like some deeply unattractive person, but you know relative to Paige Van Zant, I think the the emphasis on looks is just totally unfortunate for Carla Esparza because again I don't think she's in any way unattractive, but um, that's that's not her primary focus as a uh, a, a public uh, figure. Um, and I, I like the way she competes. I think she's super well-rounded. She's a little bit like, unfortunately, and again, I, I'm looking for, I think she's going to be champion for a while. We'll see, you know, maybe she gets knocked out on Saturday, but, um, she's a little bit like, if I'm reading the reaction from fans, a little bit like, not exactly because she built up a certain bit of a personality issue on the ultimate fighter. But since then, I think a lot of people had short, uh, forgotten about that. Oh, there's a certain sort of invisibility about her. A little like Demetrius Johnson in that regard. Maybe it's not coincidental that she represents the lowest female weight class in the UFC and she rep he represents the lowest uh, male weight class. Uh, or maybe that's just coincidence, but I think it's a little bit to do with it. But I think more than anything is, you know, she doesn't talk trash about her opponents. She likes to have fun with her girlfriends. Um, you know, her nickname is the Cookie Monster. But when she gets in the cave, dog, it's a different show. It's a completely different show. So that's sort of the way I read it is that she is, she's just like a, a super sweet, really nice girl that you know, who happens to be awesome at this one thing, but is otherwise doesn't have that like kind of gritty edge that your J check has or however you pronounce her name. Let's go to the Twitter machine. If we can. Let's see. Huh? Oh, Jake Ellenberger hit me up. Says, well done. I've been enjoying your insight. Well, thank you to uh, Jake Ellenberger for watching. I really appreciate that. That's very cool of you, my friend. And congrats on your recent win. Uh, okay, back to Twitter. Um, let's see. Hey, Luke, besides the obvious jabs and footwork, I actually think guys work on that pretty well. What are something less talked about things taller fighters need to work on? I have been wondering about this. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Maybe I'm totally wrong. And if I am, by all means, correct the record. I am starting to believe, with the exception of John Jones, taller fighters might be at a disadvantage in MMA. And maybe it's because of the way they fight that I think that, but I don't see many tall fighters use their height as an advantage very often. I just don't. And as a tall guy himself, and jiu-jitsu is totally different, obviously, but um, there are ways to do it. 
You know, there really are. I I wonder if you're more susceptible to being hit with a takedown because someone can level change on you easier. I wonder if you're more susceptible to uppercuts because sometimes guys are leaning down a lot. I, I, I just, I, I don't know, but I really have, I have not seen a lot of compelling cases of taller fighters using their height at maybe their reach, but not, and even that not so much, but definitely not their height as some kind of competitive advantage. And I think the stats bear that out. I think that fight metric has pointed out that there really is no data to suggest that now certainly reach may be a compelling factor of, um, you know, positively correlated with success in the octagon, but not height, not height. And in fact, it, I wonder if it's a disadvantage, particularly in that wrestling department, man, because it's so, you see guys, for example, how about this? Liam McGarry versus Emmanuel Newton, man. Emmanuel Newton doesn't have the world's best takedowns and didn't necessarily win on all his first attempts. But even if he didn't get the first attempt off the single and he was trying to run the pipe, he would just he would just drop it and run around the back to get to the side uh, to get to, to behind and then just do the bit where you put your shin in the back of their leg and you drag them back. You could almost take them back from there. You know, there was all kinds of things. Or he had the single leg too. You know, um, and you could say, oh well, McGarry just has bad takedown defense, and maybe he does, but maybe he's got bad takedown defense because it's hard to get good takedown defense when you're that tall. There's something to be said for the fact that you know. Even when in wrestling, and I've, I never trained a Division One program, but even the little I've done, people, yes, they teach you level changing, and yes, they want you to shoot doubles and all that kind of stuff. But most of the time, the coach will take you to the side when you're my height, like six foot four, just because there's other guys in the class that are pretty big. They'll just take us to the side and they'll be like, "Look, you guys need to work on clinch takedowns. This is what you need to do." But in wrestling context, you're going to get someone who's just wrestling, so you're always still going to be bent over a little bit. You're always going to be still kind of you know protecting your legs and hips. And um, I don't know, man. It's I would. I just don't see many guys who are tall who you look at with their height and you're like, man, how is that guy going to deal with that? And obviously, the reach is uh, a component of that, both with the height and also, also by itself to some extent. Um, but I, I really wonder. The more I think about it, is height necessarily a disadvantage? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. John Jones would be an exception, but John Jones has you know ridiculously high fight IQ. So take that for what it is. Let's see. You know anything about the Marine Corps mixed martial arts program? Yeah, I did a little bit of it. I got promoted, I think, twice in it. I think I got green belt in it. God, is that what it is? It was brown, then green, and then silver, and then black, I think. Uh, yeah, I think I got a green belt in it because um, I did some extra training in it. Yeah, it's not like Army combatives. It's much more about a giving each Marine a personal level of ability to defend themselves more than army combatives is that plus another level of, you know, specificity and, 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 uh, um, obviously has a much more completed infrastructure of training and competition and, um, and things like that. Uh, you know, all oh, look, army's a lot bigger. They got a lot more money. The Marine Corps just doesn't have those kinds of resources, at least not yet. Uh, for this kind of thing, but McMap is good, you know, for look for some basics for self-defense. It's pretty great. Uh, it involves some weapons training. Um, it's a little bit different, you know. I've seen guys. Um, I don't know if it was, you know, who knows if it was properly regulated, but I I had seen a guy take out his shoelaces once and choke another guy with it, so that was a little bit different. Uh, although that may not have been may not have been legal. You know, look, the average jujitsu purple belt and maybe even a blue belt will probably have his way with most guys in the McMap program, but. Um, I think if you're like a black belt in the McMack program, they do a heavy emphasis on physical conditioning. They do a big emphasis on body hardening. They do a big emphasis on just giving guys the kinds of things they need if in the middle of the battlefield, 
uh, with your weapon or without it, you know, you stand a better chance at surviving and, and hurting your opponent. So it's not Army Combatives takes that to another level where, you know, that's a that's a I mean, that's the precursor to MMA. It's they treat it as a sport and they've got camps around it and, you know, money to devote to the program and, you know, competitions and high level training. It's another level. I think the, the Marine Corps is just trying to give you something to use um, to protect yourself either on the street, but more likely on the battlefield, you know. That's really what it's about. And so it's got some value. It's just not the same thing as the Army Combatives. So um, are you an hour earlier or just in different time zones? You, sir, are in different time zones. In a year, if neither loses, who is a bigger MMA star, Ronda Rousey or Conor McGregor? Wow, good question. Um, well, probably going to be Ronda Rousey because she's so far ahead. So I would say her. But I do wonder that if McGregor beats Aldo, let's say does it in the most amazing way imaginable let's say first round bludgeon let's say or how about this not even that let's and i find this to be improbable but if mcgregor beats aldo in the way that dillashaw beat Barrow, you know we're talking about a drubbing what would that do for conor mcgregor's popularity first of all we're already being told he's the most popular guy in ireland right now and if he's not that would do it that's the first thing um, secondly, I think it would turn him into a pay-per-view attraction overnight. And third, I don't know where it would place him in terms of pay-per-view attractions, but it would be, it would be the most monumental event in featherweight history. It already is, but that, that shift of the balance of power would be the most monumental shift in featherweight, um, title history. So there's that as well, you know, I mean, what was the last time it happened when Brown got beat by getting... Would he get choked out or from the back, or he got banged out from the back by Jose Aldo? I mean, I, I was at my girlfriend's place in Arlington, Virginia at the time, who was now my wife, you know. Uh, it wasn't a particularly momentous occasion. It would be a truly, truly epic moment in, in mixed martial arts history. So I still think Ronda Rossi's ahead. She's just got so much uh, advantages related to that kind of thing. But nevertheless, um, it would be, a, it would be, he would be, he would make up a big portion of what's missing. I'm missing. How about that? Uh, let's see. How do Misha Tate and Kat Zingano do against Cyborg at 140? I think both of them get banged out pretty quickly. I don't think either do does particularly well, especially um, if, you know coming into her headstrong like that. I think they're gonna. Have a, I think everyone talks about Cyborg's ferociousness as a puncher, and she has that. Dude, go back and watch her fight with Kunin. She has good takedown defense. She's strong about underhooking in the clinch. Um, she's got great takedowns herself. She's got a wide range of uh, the level of her technical progress needs to be appreciated. Whether that means she will be Rousey if they ever face her, I don't know. But I think that Kunin fight, more than anything else, should give you a sense of uh, where she's at. And even, you know, you, you want to talk about it, go back to the uh, Yorina or Jorina Bars fight. Everyone's like, oh, my God, Cyborg got handled. Dude, Cyborg took on a challenge she probably shouldn't have. Cyborg faced a woman who is a beast in kickboxing, much more credentialed than she is. And yeah, she got dropped a couple of times, but she hung on. To me, that's actually kind of impressive that she did that. I looked at that and I'm like, damn, <laughs> not, not bad. Not bad, Cyborg, not bad at all. She's won medals in the IBJJF various tournament cycles at Purple Belt. Bro, she's, a, she's kind of technical. She's kind of technical, so she's got, you know, all the things necessary to just bludgeon you if she lands. 
but it's not like you're just going to go in there and take, she's not, you know, some power puncher, you can just go in there and just take down and have your way with her. Not going to happen. It's just not going to happen at all. Um, great, heavy, powerful hips uh, when you try to, when you try to get in on her. So, um, so I would favor her to beat uh, Kat and uh, Misha to, to say nothing of the weight advantage she would enjoy uh, at, at those weights as well. Uh, let's see. Cause versus Silva is awful. Benson tweeted he'd fight Cause. Only has one fight left in his contract. Is this to retire sooner? Maybe. Look, if this is Cause's way, Koscheck's way of going out on his own terms, of just getting it over with. Look, I don't know. If this is the case, but let's theorize for a moment. Let's theorize that he had that what happened to him against our own Jake Ellenberger at uh, UFC 184, and realized, look, I just couldn't get it done, and. I'm 37. I've only got one more fight left. Let's just let's just get this through. I'll just move on to the next chapter of my career, whatever that may be. You got the, the throne base camp and the various businesses he claims he's involved in, right? So he gets the opportunity to fill in against Eric Silva, who is a fun fight. Um, maybe Kaz has never been to Brazil to compete and, and says, hey, that'd be a fun way to do it. Um, and just 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 wants to just wants to get it over with, wants to fight a young buck. I I, I I don't get an overarching sense that this is a way to rejuvenate things. I think the fight against Ellenberger was a bit of a wake-up call. Um, I think he went to that fight thinking he was going to try certain things, and even if he lost, if he was able to do certain things and have a certain kind of effect, that would have told him that there was a little bit left. Um, but after that first, geez, after the first blast double, really, there wasn't much left for him, you know. I remember we talked about it before. There was another gear. There was Ellenberger was able to make those adjustments to what Cause was doing, so that by the time it, you know, uh, the 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 choke came around, there was little he could do at that point. But um, Cause had what he had in the bag, and when that was taken away, there was nothing left. And so I wonder if he sort of realized that too, to some extent, and 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 wants to just sort of move on and you know have a good fun fight and give the fans what they want and get another paycheck and move on, or you know win and go out in a blaze of glory. You know, either, either way, I don't get the sense, though, that he, and I could be wrong, I don't get the sense, though, that even if he wins, he goes out, he's going to go out there and plan to say, hey, look, uh, uh, you know, this is the start of something fresh again. I just, I just, I just don't believe that. Is Kunin the best opponent that Cyborg has defeated? Probably. I need to just make sure about that before I say yes. Um I wouldn't count Carano as the best opponent she's ever faced. I would certainly say that's the high, most high, pro, high profile, but certainly Kunin is up there. So let's see. Uh, man, let's see who she's beaten. Shayna Baszler, but that was back in the day. Yoko Takahashi, no. Hitomi Okano, no. Gina Carano, Marlos Kunin once. Jan Finney, no. Um, and then Marlos Kunin twice. So yeah, Marlos Kunin is definitely the best opponent she's ever faced, for sure. And she's, you know, blasted her out both times. Uh, Kunin lasted one round longer the second time, but that's not so much Cyborg's fault in, in as much as it's just what's available um, to them. Uh, okay, let's do one more, and then we shall one or two more, and then we shall exit from this wonderful day. Uh, Sherdog ranks Alexa Grasso as the number nine strawweight in the world. Do you agree with this? I actually do. Jacare Souza, what are your thoughts on Jacare's upcoming fight with Yoel? Do you think he will breeze through him? And if not, here's the thing. Um, Jacare is much more polished than Yoel Romero. 
they might be equally athletic if you're well being slightly more athletic but a little bit older but um actually you know what i might say you is a better athlete but um but jocker is up there i mean you know neck and neck i mean they're both, we're, t- you know, we're talking about an insane level of athleticism okay um so you know if one's better than the other we're still talking about a level that is just you know beyond compare okay um Yoel is unrefined, but so athletic he makes up for it. But I wonder if in that pocket of a lack of refinement, if uh, Jacques Array can do something with it. Or will the fact that even though he's unrefined, having someone in front of Jacques Array that can match, if not surpass his athleticism, uh, whether or not that will be too much for him to handle. I get the sense that Jacques Array's refinement and progress, and it reminds me to some extent of Rafael Dos Anjos's progress, if uh, if that will be too much for Yoel Romero, I think I think for me the timing is going to be an issue really because Yoel is so athletic that even if you get in on him, his ability to, to create scrambles and win is amazing. His ability to hop in and out of range for his punches and to throw them with such explosive power and speed is going to matter. But against someone like Jacare, who's who has the athleticism to work with that, and then the technical refinement and the timing and the veteran experience to launch a counterattack or at least initiate the attack and then use whatever Yoel gives back as another follow-up counter, I think would just be too much for Yoel in the end. But it's going to be a hell of a fight. And seeing two guys, even at their age in their 30s, who are that kind of athletic, you know, freakazoids from a different dimension, that's going to be awesome. All right. We have to get out of here. Lots of uh, more content coming your way, UFC 185 related and beyond. You can follow me on Twitter at SBN Luke Thomas. You can email me at Luke.Thomas at SBNation.com. And, of course, on uh, Facebook.com slash Luke T Sports. And uh, they'll have content from today's – quickly before I go, actually. What is it today? Is it the workout? What is it? What is it? What is it? It is today. Today is the open workouts with Pettis, Dos Anjos, Esparza, Yajacek, and Hendricks. We'll have all the stuff up from that today in just a matter of hours. Until next time, thanks for watching. Stay frosty.